All right. Well, we are back to the Acts series. I don't know about you, but I truly, truly am loving this series. And it seems like it's taking forever, and it is, in fact, nearly taking forever. We're about two and a half years in. I think this is part 59. And uh, I'm hoping, Lord willing, we're going to complete this before Easter celebration. So that's the goal. Uh, we're going to be taking a couple different breaks over the next two months, next three months, but we're going to be trying to work through the remainder of this series. Here's what we're doing in the Acts series. We're looking at a series that talks about getting the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, all the way to the end of the earth. Notice it doesn't say all the way to the ends of the earth in the first chapter, but to the end of the earth. We're looking at the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. And today we are rounding third base. We are on our way home. We are looking at the beginning of the end of Paul's life. Now I want to say that again because you're going to want to know this because we're going to come back to it. We're looking at the beginning of the end of Paul's life from this point on. He will be a prisoner, and eventually he will be a martyr. Did you know that the word martyr and the word witness are the same words? In his death, he will be a witness of the glory of Jesus Christ. There has been a pattern in the book of Acts it's actually a minor subplot, and you might have missed it, and I want to acquaint you to it in case you have. So in Acts chapter 7, you'll see on the screen behind me in verse 14 and 18, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. Acts chapter 13, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Acts chapter 17, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. You seeing this pattern? We're actually talking about jealousy. Jealousy can actually be something positive or it could be something negative. It has a meaning in the Bible of being hot and fervent and full of zeal. God's love is a jealous love. A good marriage love is a jealous love. In fact, Song of Solomon chapter 8 verse 6 tells us that a good marital love is like the love of God. It is love that is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. So if you love somebody at a marriage, and there is somebody flirting with your wife or flirting with your husband, you should rise up in fervency, in heat, in zeal to protect what belongs to you. However, jealous, jealousy is often, actually more often, negative. It is evil. It is terribly destructive. In fact, it was jealousy that filled the heart of Satan who burned with a zeal to have what was God's. So let me read this to you from Isaiah chapter 14. 
The word of God says how you are fallen from heaven. This is referring to Satan. O day star, son of dawn. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here is the quintessential statement of jealousy. I will make myself like the most high. You see, it is jealousy that filled the devil's heart, and I need you to hear this because jealousy can fill your heart and my heart as well. In fact, it is one of the works of the flesh, Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They are obvious. We all have them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, and it goes on. So jealousy is a work of the flesh when it is negative, and it is imitating the example of the devil, and it is destructive. Now, if you want to see just how destructive jealousy really can be, then I would encourage you to watch the movie Amadeus, where Antonio Salieri's jealousy of the piano prodigy Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, it destroyed both of them. That movie, probably better than almost any other movie that I've ever been acquainted with, shows the destruction of a heart of jealousy. Or you could read from Shakespeare. We've all heard it because we've all had to take English classes. And I quote Shakespeare in Othello. Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. You'll remember this. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. So jealousy is destructive. And we will see it rise up in the hearts of the enemies of the gospel. Now I have a few points for you. And I'm going to make them a little bit more hard-hitting as they go. And then at the end, I'm going to ask for everybody to give every bit of attention you can and take an assessment of your own life spiritually. In fact, let me get you going on that for a moment. Now, I want you to think right now for a moment. Where are you right now with Jesus? Where's your spiritual walk right now? Now, some of you might be saying, well, I don't believe yet. I am seeking, and you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you here. I hope we get hundreds and hundreds of people that will come here to seek. You're going to hear the truth of the Word of God, and I'm going to pray that you will make up your mind, and my hope that you will decide to follow Jesus. So you might say, well, I'm seeking the truth, and I think that's applaudable. But you might say right now, well, you know what I just did before I came to church was I went on a drinking binge. I'm actually a little drunk. Or maybe some people here are watching online or high right now. Or if you were really honest, and you probably are being very honest, before God Almighty, you would have to admit, uh, my life is full of sexual immorality. I'm doing things with this person that is not my spouse that God clearly says not to. Or I'm looking at pornography. I know there is lust in my heart. Where are you right now? Are you angry at God? 
Is your heart bitter towards the Lord? Now, why I'm asking you to do this, and this will all be making more sense as we get to the end of this message, is that we all need to, including me, we all need to be assessing and examining our lives and being honest before the Lord and coming clean with him, meaning there is likely a very good probability that a lot of us need to be confessing what has taken hold of us, the sin in our lives, and repenting and worshiping God rather than sin. Now keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. Let me start, though, working through our passage. And let me give you the first point. And the first point you'll see on the screen is this. Jealousy moved the enemies of the gospel to rise up. It moved the enemies of the gospel to rise up. Now, you're not going to see the word jealousy in our passage. That's why I read to you the pattern that is all through the book of Acts. It is motivating them. And I want to bring you back to actually the beginning of the passage, verse 7. You see, the Jews believed that walking in Gentile land, that would be in a non-Jewish territory... Walking in their land made you spiritually contaminated. They believed that even the Gentiles' dirt was spiritually defiled. So they would undergo a seven-day purification ritual when they returned to Israel. That meant they had to go to the, the temple twice during seven days. They had to go on the third day and offer a sacrifice. And then on the seventh day and offer a sacrifice. And that would complete their purification. Well, Paul, having come from Asia Minor up near Ephesus, coming from Gentile non-Jewish land, goes to the temple for the purification ceremony. And this is the seventh day, the final day of his purification He goes to the temple, and some Jewish men from Ephesus see him. And look at verse 27. Everybody look at your Bibles. They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, I want to get you into this story as well as I can. I really, really, really want you to try to imagine this. You're here right now to worship. You're here to worship Jesus. And I want you to imagine that you leave this building in about an hour or whenever. You leave this building, and as you walk out the front door, a mob of people come, and they overwhelm you physically, and they start beating you because you were here. Don't think this is so far-fetched. This is happening all over the world. But can you imagine it for a moment? And some of you are going, well, I would fight back. I would beat them up. I'd show them. No, you wouldn't. You'd be overwhelmed. Just like Paul is overwhelmed. He's at the temple. He is worshiping. He is purifying his life. And it all comes without warning. He is grabbed hold of by a mob that formed out of nowhere. And my friend, that is often what persecution does. Do not think for a moment that you will see persecution come like you see storm clouds on the horizon. 
It comes without warning. It comes suddenly. And I hope you hear this, Christian. The time to prepare for it is now, not when persecution lands on your door. In fact, you can prepare yourself now for the potential of persecution as you live out your faith boldly and beautifully. The more you live your love out loud for the Son of God, the more you refuse to compromise the gospel, the more pushback you're going to likely receive, even from those closest to you. Now, let me give you possibly a little test. You might be saying to me, well, pastor, I've never received persecution. I don't even know what you're talking about. I would suggest, possibly, you're not living your Christian walk out loud. You've blended in. You're not that different from people around you. See, Jesus says this as a warning, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will. Doesn't say might. He doesn't say it's likely. They will persecute you as well. You know, recently... As you remember, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and some of my high school friends were enraged. They were furious. And I quietly, and as biblically as I knew how, defended the unborn, and all of their rage towards the Supreme Court turned on me. What happened to you, Tim? You're not the person I used to know. How can you be so judgmental? How can you hate women? How can you be like this? All of their rage turned on to me because I lived out loud. See, as the grace of God is visible in your life, in your contentment, in your purity, in your peace, do not be surprised at the zealous and jealous response that could come against you. But let me tell you a little secret. All you have to do if you want to have a life that is devoid of persecution is stay in the shadows. Don't talk of your love for Jesus. Blend in with the world and you will never experience Christian persecution. That's your secret. However, I got to give you a warning Because Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Are you blending in? Are you compromising? Are you living out loud at work? Are you living out loud in your social group? Are you living your faith obviously and no compromise? If you deny Jesus before your friends and before people on this earth, He will deny you before his father. He will say to you, I do not know you. See, we can live our lives out loud for Jesus in faithful devotion. And when we do, there will be a target that appears on our backs. And like Jesus, the apostle Paul stood strong and silent before their jealous rage. And he endured what came next. Point number two, jealousy moved these enemies to make false accusations. 
Back in Acts chapter 20, verse 16, can you look at that? You'll probably have to not even turn a page. Acts 20, verse 16. We learned that Paul was hurrying to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, or Pentecost. It took place 50 days, it always does, 50 days after Passover for the Jews. Did you know that the name Pentecost actually means 50th? And Jewish people from all over the world, men and women, as far away as Europe and Rome, all over the world, Egypt, everywhere, they would come streaming into Jerusalem for this early summer festival. And while there, Paul runs into some old enemies who saw him in the temple. Now, you might be wondering, how would they recognize Paul so easily? I mean, it's not like there's social media then where selfies, the Apostle Paul has selfies plastered all over Facebook and Instagram and it's on the news. None of that was possible then. Let me tell you how you would remember meeting the Apostle Paul. And this is coming from a second century church leader. And he describes the Apostle Paul physically. And he said, and I'm quoting, he was a man of middling size and his hair was scanty. His legs were a little crooked. His knees were far apart. He had large eyes. His eyebrows met and his nose was somewhat long. So here we've got Paul. He is short. He is bald. He is bow-legged. He walks with a limp. He's got a large nose. He's got a massive unibrow. Believe me, when you met Paul, you're going to remember Paul. And these enemies recognized him, and they cried out. Look at verse 27 in Acts 21. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, even more is what they're saying. He even brought Greeks into the temple and he's defiled this holy place. Well, there's something you probably need to know if you're going to understand how this mob or why this mob reacted with such bloodthirsty rage. They're intent on killing him. They're going to kill him. Don't you remember what I just did a minute ago where I said, hey, imagine for a moment you leave church tonight. You walk out the door and a mob just converges on you and they subdue you physically and they start beating you. And they're not just going to bloody and bruise you. Their goal is to end your life. This is what's happening to the Apostle Paul. The temple is filled with worldwide worshipers of Yahweh. They have come to celebrate Pentecost, which I told you means the 50th. Originally, by the way, Pentecost. It's a feast. It's a festival. It was associated with the early summer harvest. So the first time that they get their grain or their wheat, they would have a festival thanking God for giving them the harvest. It was called the Matan Torah. As the Jews believed it was on that day, on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So today, Jewish people today, in our day and age, they hold an all-night tikkun leel Shavuot study. Meaning, you get together, and all night on the day of Pentecost, you simply study the Bible. It's happening all over our country, all over the world. 
They had a love for the love of God. They had a love for Israel. They had a love for the temple. It dominated Pentecost. In fact, their love for the law and Israel and the temple was at their zenith, at their highest point and Pentecost. So the fuse was easily lit against Paul by these enemies who accused him publicly of violating all three of them. Law, Israel, and temple. But one of those false accusations tipped them over the edge into a riot intent on murder. Let me tell you what it was. You see, in the temple complex, let me, let me just explain the size of the temple. It was the size of, our, of five of our football fields. If you put five football fields together... You've got the size of the temple in Jerusalem, and it had concentric courts. So the very first court you went into when you went to the temple was the court of Gentiles, and that would be the court of women. Well, the court of Gentiles, that's as far as a Gentile, non-Jewish person could go, but Israel's women and men could go further, and they could go into the court of women. That's where all the offering boxes were, but that's as far as the women could go. And then you go into the court of Israel, and then the court of priests, and then you've got the actual sanctuary, the holy place, and the most holy place. It's all built concentrically. The further in you go, the closer you get to the presence of God. Well, you're in the court of Gentiles, if you can imagine it, and it's a massive court. Just one side of it was big enough for 25,000 people to be standing around talking. But there was a little wall, a low wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the court of women. And everywhere there was a gate, there was a stone and a chiseled sign. And the sign, I'm going to quote, said this. I can quote it because archaeologists have found these. It says this, No Gentile shall enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple, and whoever is caught shall be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. See, historians tell us that the only time that the Jewish people could actually carry out the death penalty of their own authority is if somebody, even if it's a Roman citizen, walked beyond the court of the Gentiles and they were not a Jew. They could be stoned right then and there. Now look at the false accusation. Look at verse 29. For these enemies had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed, do you see that word? They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, but Paul never had. They're going to murder him on a lie, on an assumption, and persecution doesn't care. See, Paul was not against the law. He was not against Israel. He was not against the temple. But he taught that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of Israel. He was the fulfillment of the temple of God. He is the only means of salvation. And neither had he taken Trophimus into the temple courts. But I want you to listen to what I'm going to tell you. And you can see it on the screen. False accusation is a favorite strategy of the devil. And slander is his most fluent language. Now, I want you to look at that on the screen, if you would. Because if you're going to walk boldly, your faith in Jesus 
you will be persecuted. And one of the favorite strategies of the devil is false accusation. It is filled with slander. And when somebody slanders you, Christian, it is not the Heavenly Father speaking. He does not speak in that language. If he needs to correct you, or if he needs to correct me, he will correct us with truth and grace. And slander usually is neither. And whether those accusations and whether that slander is coming from so-called friends or your church congregants or co-workers, it is from the devil. But there's one more final point. Jealousy moved them to murderous anger. Now, everybody here, including myself, knows what it means to be jealous. You know it. You know it. If you can remember it right now, you can probably feel that burn. It shouldn't surprise us that jealousy can move you to murderous anger. It moved Cain to jealously murder Abel, his brother. It moved Joseph's brothers to try to kill him. It moved Saul in his jealousy to attempt to kill David. Jealousy is a terribly destructive emotion. Now look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. Now, I need you to know something, that during the day of Pentecost, there's hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. They come from all over the world. All the city was stirred up, verse 30, and, all, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. The mob riots. They're going to kill Paul, verse 31, but alongside the northwest side of the temple is a Roman garrison called Fort Antonia. And during Jewish festivals, Rome would bring in hundreds and hundreds of soldiers to keep the peace. And centuries have been watching from the 100-foot-tall towers. And when the riot started, they alerted the tribune, a commander of a 1,000 soldiers. This is the top guy. He took at least two centurions. Look, look at verse 32. That means 200 or more soldiers. It's plural. And when the mob saw them, they stopped beating Paul. He's being beaten. They're trying to kill him. All on trumped up charges. This is what persecution looks like. And with the riot focused on Paul, the tribune binds him in two chains. Don't you remember the prophet Agabus in verse 11 of this chapter? Who prophesied that his feet and, hands, his feet and wrists are going to be tied together? Well, there's two chains that are binding him. But with the violence of the mob, look at verse 36, they're shouting away with him, meaning they want to kill him. Paul was actually picked up and carried into the garrison, and the people still would not relent of their violence. This is murderous rage. Now, I titled this message the beginning of the end for two reasons. One is obvious. Paul's now going to be a prisoner for the rest of his life until he's martyred for Jesus. 
The second reason is less obvious. And I need you to look again at verse 30. And I need every single eye looking at your Bible. Because it's not going to be on the screen. Look at verse 30 again where it says, And at once the gates were shut. At once the gates were shut. Why did Luke, the author of Acts, tell us that detail? What's important that we need to know? Well, the gates of the temple were the ways into the presence of God. Is there a symbolism that Luke wants us to see? Well, many commentators believe there is. I do as well. They shut the gates to protect the holy presence of God from this mob rioting, from the defilement of the Apostle Paul and their trumped-up charge. But in doing so, his presence was no longer accessible. This jealous group of Jewish men refused to see, they refused to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul had been preaching to them. And there's a point, my friends, and I hope you hear this, there's a point where a person can harden his or her heart, refusing to believe, their heart gets increasingly harder, and God finally says, the offer of salvation is closed. And he will turn you over to your sinful depravity. See, a person's heart can become so hardened that there is no longer any capacity to believe in Jesus. There's a very sober warning in the book of Hebrews. And it goes like this. God's promise of entering his rest. That means God's promise of salvation. It still stands today. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For some of you, the gates will be shut. For this is good news that God has prepared this rest, this salvation, has been announced to us just as it was to them, but it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. As for others, God said, in my anger I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. So God said another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. Just as the hand of God shut the door to Noah's ark, leaving those unwilling to believe, hardened in their hearts, outside to perish, here the gates to his presence and the temple are shut. And the door of salvation is closed. You know, I often have individuals come to me full of anxiety over whether they could be saved and I've learned to give them a very simple answer, and it's this. It's in the form of a question. Do you want to be saved? And I will tell you that anyone who wants to be saved will be saved, but there is only one gate you can enter to get to God. And Jesus tells us what it is. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And Jesus says in the book of the uh, Revelation says, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Salvation is free. You can have it, but if you harden your heart, 
repeatedly throughout your life, there will come a day when that offer is over. I believe I've seen that day come in the 30 years that I've been pastoring to several individuals who over and over were given the offering of salvation but hardened their hearts. For some of them, they would not stop drinking. They would not stop drugs. They would not relent in sexual immorality. They would not believe They would not submit to Jesus, and their lives, as I was watching them, went progressively downhill into utter deterioration and destruction until finally, at a very young age, several of them died. And it has always struck me, though I do not know, has always struck me, did they harden their heart to the point where God said, the gate to my presence is closed. Friends, you cannot hesitate. You cannot say to God, I'm not ready yet. You do not know if you will have another opportunity. I believe there are some in our church who are perilously close to their gates being closed. They know the truth. They've heard the truth. And they keep hardening their heart. This is why that passage from Hebrews ends with this encouragement. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Well, here's what we learned in this passage, and then I'll bring it to an end. We've learned that Paul lived his faith boldly. There was no friend of Paul. There was no group that Paul met. There was no people that Paul would ever not share about Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, and Christian, I am talking to you right now. Whether you're online watching this or listening to this or here, are there friends, are there schoolmates, are there coworkers that have never heard you tell them about Jesus? Are you bold? Are you giving in to fear? You're living a very safe life, but you're not living a fruitful life. You want to live out loud? You want to live bold with your faith? There will be a target on your back. You will lose friends. You will lose promotions. You may lose jobs, but you will gain so much more. And the greatest thing you will ever gain are some who will say yes to the offer of salvation and be with you in eternity. Be bold, be courageous, and don't worry about persecution. Your heavenly Father is in control. 
But I want to speak to those of you who are here or watching this or listening to this. You know you're not a Christian. And you know you've heard this message. And you keep saying no. You are hardening your heart. And there may come a day when that gate is closed. And the way to the presence of the Lord is barred from you. Do not wait. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take this seriously. And Lord, that we would see that Luke put that little verse in there for a reason. And the gates of the temple were closed. How ironic that he wrote that right after a mob started beating Paul, trying to kill him, rejecting your messenger. Father, I pray for every person that is hearing this message that is not a Christian, that has heard this message of the good news of Jesus, has heard that they can have forgiveness of their sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus, have heard that if they come to Jesus and submit to him in faith as their Savior and Lord, they will have a relationship with God their Father. They've heard it, but they've said no. And their lives are ruining and becoming increasingly ruined. Father, today is a day of salvation. We dare not hesitate. We are not promised tomorrow. Lord, would you move them to believe? Would you move them to cry out truly for salvation? And would you save them? And would you change their lives? And Father, would you be with the rest of us who are believers, but we are not living boldly? Lord, there is a warning from the lips of Jesus, if you deny me, I will deny you. We cannot shirk our responsibility to declare what Jesus Christ has done. Let us rise up even this week and share the good news of Jesus wherever we go. And even if a target of persecution comes onto our backs, that's okay. We're following your steps, the Apostle Paul's steps, Peter's, Isaiah's, Jeremiah's, Ezekiel's, Elijah's, Elisha's, Noah's. There's a great cloud of witnesses that are encouraging us on to courage and bravery and boldness. May we live out loud our faith in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.